Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about motor planning. Um, we've been getting a lot of questions lately in mentor meetings about motor planning and I think seeing the concerns pop up a lot more in sessions in general. Uh, so I think it's a good point to talk about all the different ways motor planning difficulties can show up um, and, and how to relate that back to concerns that the parents may be having. So we have other talks on this too, so I'm going to kind of assume that everybody kind of already understands what motor planning is, but there's a lot of different ways that we see it impact our patients. One is with regulation. I think one of the trickiest things that I see with our kids who have motor planning difficulties, especially when it's not really significant, is their ability to regulate through all of that extra frustration. Every task that they do is requiring some cognitive demand on them to motor plan. So if you think about like the first time you learn a new skill, how much you have to focus and think about all the different things that you're doing in order to be successful. A lot of our kids, just their day-to-day tasks require that level of cognitive demand for them. So sometimes I'll give families the example, you know, especially if they don't play the piano, think about if you were to learn to play the piano, but while you're trying to learn and figure out what to do, someone's also asking you to memorize somebody's phone number. And usually if you think about that, you can kind of feel that extra cognitive demand that's placed on you. And if you imagine that that could be potentially a state that a child is in all day long, you can really kind of appreciate how much that might impact their regulation throughout a day and especially how that might fizzle out by the end of the day while they're just toast or why they might fight certain tasks that they think that the parent thinks the child can do. A lot of times my motor planning kids, the parents will say they can do it. They just choose not to, but maybe it's actually just hard, right? Maybe that cognitive load is too much to handle, even if they can be successful. I'll never forget this patient that I worked with once where he had a lot of motor planning issues. So he did kind of fight a lot of different tasks and he wanted to learn and he had a goal for shoe tying. So the first time I brought it out to him, we sat down I showed him how to do it. He mastered it on the first try. Like it did not look hard at all. He was able to do all the different moves. He sequenced all the steps. He was successful. He got it. And I was like, that was amazing. So good. I thought we're going to be done with this goal in one shot. And he was so defeated afterwards. And it really took me by surprise. But then I realized to him, it felt hard. He didn't feel that excitement, that success at the end, because throughout the whole task, he was putting in tremendous energy because of his motor planning. And sure enough, the next couple of weeks after that, that we, I even brought up shoe tying, it was this like major meltdown, lots and lots of refusal because it was bringing out a stress response in him and his memory of the task was hard. So I think it's important for families, for us to educate our families about one, motor skills might look inconsistent. That doesn't mean that the child is necessarily being malicious or deliberately trying to sabotage or just refusing to do a task. It might just be, I don't have enough, enough gas in my tank to put energy towards this motor task today. Therefore, mommy, I want you to put my shoes on me. I want you to put my clothes on me, whatever that task might be, even if you've seen them do it before. So I think that's one really important thing to think about for our families um, when their child is having some motor planning difficulties. The other area that we um, see it impact sometimes is attention and engagement and play skills. So when there are motor planning issues, sometimes there are also difficulties with coming up with ideas for play, for visualizing how things work, 
and for sequencing steps, multiple steps to an activity. So I have some kids on my case so currently that will go into the closet and take out a toy, take out a toy, take out a toy, and they don't really do anything with it. They just take out a bunch of stuff and then they walk away. So they aren't even staying engaged with the process of like taking it out and cleaning it up. That's too much for them. Um, and these are also the same kids that the parents tell me, I need to show them how to play with a new toy. And that's not very typical. We don't typically have to show most most situations, most kids, you don't typically have to show a kid how to use a toy. They can usually figure it out or at least make a pretty good guess on their own. Um, but this was these were kids that were having a hard time coming up with ideas. So they would just take stuff out, look at it, and then not know to do with it, and then move on to the next thing. Or they would go and pick the same activities week after week. So if I brought in an activity and chose it, they would pick that every single time after that because I just had a really hard time figuring out something new to play. So when I often will ask parents then, like, how do they play at home and what are some barriers that they might be experiencing? A lot of times these parents will report to me that their child is having a hard time playing independently. Um, and that can be obviously like a huge burden on the family dynamic because sometimes that's that time for the parent where they need to do other things. Um, but when I explain to them is, it's hard for them to one, come up with an idea two figure out how to play it. And then also figure out how all the steps and keep them in order all on their own. They're probably needing a lot more adult support from you. So what we talk about is let's figure out what are some toys that they're really familiar with and that they can stay engaged with for extended periods of time or as long as they can for themselves. And let's put those in a basket. And so when you need some time to yourself, or you really want your child to play independently put those things in a basket and say, you could pick something from here. So you've narrowed down their choices. They only have a few things to pick from, assuming this is a kid who can handle that. Some kids can't handle that level of restriction. Um, but for some of our motor planning kids, it can be beneficial because they don't have the open-endedness of anything that is available to them in the house. Okay, it's time for your transition basket or your free play basket or whatever the family wants to call it. Go pick something from there to play. And these are, like I said, tasks that they should be able to do on their own and have the parents have seen that this is um, an option. Um, and then the other area that we see this impact a lot is problem solving. A lot of our motor planning kids are also very likely to have issues with sensory discrimination. And like I mentioned earlier, that difficulty with being able to visualize how something works. So we look at things and we're like, I know how that works. I know exactly what to do. And that's often what we see. Kids walk into the clinic and they go right to the slide, they climb up. Maybe they've never done a slide before, but they just figure it out. Or they see a swing and they're like, I know exactly what I do with that. I'm going to go climb on it and sit on it. It's going to move. And they're ready for all those things. They can anticipate it, but they're making all those judgments based on their vision. So our kids who have motor planning difficulties sometimes have a hard time problem solving. So they get stuck. They're not sure what to do. Um, and they really benefit from having that practice at failing and experiencing what all those different things feel like. So the biggest thing I usually tell those families is like, don't solve the problem for them, but be there as like a guide and instructor pointing out the things that you're noticing. Wow. I noticed that that ball is really wobbly. I'm not sure how safe that's going to be to stand on. I'm worried it might fall and talking about the clues you're looking at, not just don't do that. That's not safe. You're going to fall. Because also, we're wrong sometimes. In fact, one of my um, favorite memories of one of my previous patients, he was 
actually a kid who had a lot of motor planning issues. Um, we were playing with the, ball, the balloon pump and we had a large balloon. We were all out of the rocket balloons for whatever reason. And he was trying to put the big balloon on the balloon pump. And immediately, me and default thinking just said, that's not going to work. It's too big. And I'm trying to help him handle the regulation impact of that. And he looked at me. He was like, yes, it will. Watch. And I'm thinking, okay. I'm like, okay, let's try it. (laughs) So he takes it and he takes the balloon and he pulls it down all the way to the base. And it does stay. And we're able to inflate the balloon. And I still use that trick even now to make the big balloons work on the, on the balloon pump. It was a really creative idea for him, but this was a kid that had motor planning difficulties. So my default was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And I should have let, what I did let him try it, but I should have not said it's not going to work. But point being, letting kids actually experience it. Cause one, sometimes we're wrong as adults. And two, they also need to feel what it feels like. They need to experience it and actually see the outcome. They can't maybe visualize very easily that this balloon you know, the base of it is too wide for the balloon pump. So it's all the air is going to leak out. They can't maybe visualize all that. So they have to be able to see it. So it does take a lot, a lot of repetition. Um, And then also the ability to regulate through the frustration of failure, I think is a huge, huge thing that we can help our motor planning kids with. Because if you can't regulate through frustration and decide to persist, you're not going to develop those skills, right? Our motor planning kids still will develop the skills that they need. It just might take them more repetition, you know? They might have to practice that motor skill a lot more or be taught more specifically certain things that other kids would just pick up. But they're going to have to be able to handle the ability to persist, which is challenging when everything you do is now requiring that extra persistence. So working on regulation is, I think, one of the best things we can do for our motor planning kids. Um. The other piece we see motor planning impact a lot is communication. So obviously, um, this can directly impact our verbal communication if we're having trouble motor planning movements of the mouth. And it's not uncommon to see our kids who have difficulty motor planning oral movements for speech also have issues with motor planning in their larger muscles for more gross motor, fine motor stuff. So something to keep in mind, and this is an area I feel like we overlap a lot with speech and OT. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit more obvious because if you're having trouble motor planning movements in your mouth, that's an impact verbal speech. But also we see this impact gestural communication too. I would say more often this is true for our autistic kids, um, especially if they have pretty significant motor planning difficulties where their cues aren't maybe as obvious because they can't quite motor plan the gestures needed. So um, my favorite example of this is a kid that I was seeing, and he was probably like three or so at the time, he had really difficult time with motor planning. So he would walk up to toys, and if they're on the floor, he would just step on them and walk away. Or he would walk up to toys or swings, and he'd look at it for a couple seconds, and then he'd walk away. And it took me a while to figure out, like, this was him initiating that idea, but he had no idea how to motor plan it. So he'd walk up to the swing, look at it, and keep walking, And everyone else around thought, he's just not interested. But when I would acknowledge, oh, I want to swing, he would turn and look at me and come back to the swing. And then I could help him motor plan to get on. And that's when I would really see the motor planning breakdown where I'm like, oh, you have no idea how to organize your body on this swing. You looked at it and thought, hey, that looks interesting. I have no idea what to do. And also, I don't know how to gesture to you that I'm interested, right? I don't even know that first step to maybe grab the rope or push it or touch it even, All I do is look at it, which is 
our most simple motor plan we can do. And then the other thing I realized with toys on the floor, you know, like his mom and his parents would always think like, oh, stop stepping on those toys. You're just stepping on it or whatever. And they would try to redirect him from it, from breaking the toys. But as I was watching his motor planning, I'm like, I think he's interested in it and he's trying to play with it because he keeps coming back to it. So we just started taking the toys and putting them at eye level because what I realized is he couldn't motor plan to figure out how do I get my body? I'm standing. How do I get my body to sit on the ground? He didn't know how. So we moved toys more to eye level so he could access them easier. And then he started using his hands more with those toys. He still had a hard time motor planning it. Like he couldn't always figure out how to use his hands to activate a piano, for example. But at least his attempts were more close to what he wanted and his communication was therefore more clear because then it looked like, oh, you're trying to play the piano and people would respond appropriately. Before that, it looked like you're just stepping on the piano and they would not respond by encouraging it. They would respond by taking it away, which was the opposite of what he wanted, right? Um, over time, we did work on the motor plan of like how to just sit down, which he had, but only in specific situations, and that's, I think, that other tricky piece with our, especially with our autistic kids, I find um, some motor plans they can really master, but it's very specific to certain situations. And I don't know if it's partially all the environmental and visual cues that they get that triggers that motor plan, but I've had kids where they can only drink from a straw if it's in a McDonald's cup, <laughs> but if you give them a juice box, they can't do it. Um, and I think we, I talked about that previously in a straw drinking um, podcast that we did. But that's something else to think about. That just because the skill is there sometimes does not mean that it's consistent and doesn't mean that the motor plan is easy. They might still need practice in new situations. So it can have a huge impact on communication. And I think that's important for families to know too, because sometimes they might be missing cues that the child is trying to communicate and just can't be consistent or very clear with it. Um, and we do have a much more in-depth presentation on motor planning and its impact on communication on the Google Drive under community presentations if you're interested in, um, in learning more. Other thing to keep in mind, a lot of times our um, motor planning kids are described as stubborn or lazy or bossy. And I think it's important to take those moments with parents to educate them. One, those are not very helpful labels. Those are labels that those kids are going to internalize. And there's more positive ways that we can um, phrase those things. Maybe they're not lazy. Maybe they are very strategic about how they use their energy and how they use their abilities. Or maybe instead of being stubborn, maybe they're very determined. Or maybe instead of being bossy, they are very like good directors. Um, but also point out to them, like part of why they're doing this might be because it's hard to consistently motor plan. The cognitive demand is really high or it's a lot easier for me to tell somebody else what to do than it is for me to do it with my own body. So I might therefore take a back seat, watch kids and just direct them in what to do. Or like they might be more controlling about things in their environment because it needs to be really specific for them to feel successful. Um, and, you know, again, like that kind of stubbornness and it's good problem solving and the laziness, quote unquote, it's good problem solving. They're finding creative ways, but they're doing it to support themselves. Um, and those can be positive skills later on. They can really help them be really determined and good problem solvers, but help them build the skills where they might need it and build on those other strengths as well. But just something to think about because those are 
the probably the couple most common ways that I hear our motor planning kids be described. Stubborn, refusing to do things, um, and also lazy. So those are great opportunities for education with the family. If you think of anything else that you want to touch on or add to with this motor planning conversation, let me know. Or if you have any questions, you know where to find me.